Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Were the companies dumpster fire? No. <laughs> I mean, have you met people that are successful? Like most of them are miserable, right? Yeah. I mean, most successful people, I mean, if, if like, let's talk for a second, just maybe as a sidebar on like, why is that? Well, it's because if you're gonna start something new and grow something big, chances are that your high control personality, so typically it's type A, high control, high pride personalities, that is also paired with divergent thinking. So just those two attributes alone are going to wreck most people's lives. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram at Sam P. Coates and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guest today is Brent Beeshore. If you haven't heard of Brent before, I bet you'll be impressed with his story. After starting and acquiring companies in his 20s, he is now the CEO of Permanent Equity, where he and his team currently own 11 companies and counting, and they're overseeing deploying $300 million in capital. Brent and his team believe in owning companies for the long run, hence the name Permanent Equity. But this conversation is about much more than just business. I had a great time with Brent where we cover his own transformation after a breaking point in his late 20s. Why for him, life is a gift, not a game. How the once-in-a-lifetime opportunities he has experienced have driven him to create those for others. Why they are building educational systems inside their companies to give people the ability to advance their own value to the world. And more. Please enjoy this week's conversation with Brent Beeshore. Brent, man, great to see you. Thanks for coming on this afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me, Sam. Man, I'm, I'm curious. About three years ago, you know, I'm one of the many, uh, maybe few in the scheme of the world, but many in probably in their 30s, 40s that follow you, read you, read your content, things you recommend, et cetera. But you talked about a book called Living Life Backwards, and you wrote about that. And I, I read it shortly after you wrote about it, but I'm curious to hear from you. What is it about that book that stuck out to you the most at that time? And how did it maybe create any changes for you at that time when you read it about kind of how you approach your work, but how you approach your family, how you approach things day in, day out? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, it's one of my favorite books. Um, David Gibson is the is the author who is a 
Scottish pastor. Um, I actually, I got so fired up after reading the book that I started listening to uh, some of his sermons and uh, it was a lot different than I expected. But anyway, it's awesome. Uh, The book is, uh, uh, it's a meditation on Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is is a book in the, what Christians would call the Old Testament. And it's a book that seems way out of place. The first time I read Ecclesiastes, I was like, Boy, did this get accidentally like wedged in here for some reason? Like it doesn't, you know, it's almost like, like I could, couldn't figure out why, why it was even here. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a book about life and it's a book about the realities of life, the sharp rocks of life. And um, the, the phrase that is uh, most often quoted and, and sort of most often translated is uh, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I don't think that the, the Hebrew word for meaningless they're using there is not, I don't think this is accurate. I think that it's really hard to, to translate that word because it, it means more like life is a vapor, right? So a vapor is real. Uh, it is a, uh, it's a thing you can see, you know, when water is heated, it creates a vapor, but it's very transient. And it, it, is, it is something that is easily forgotten. And it's a book that basically makes you realize that no matter if you're rich or poor, if you accomplish a lot or accomplish little, if you have a family or you don't, if you pass along wealth or you do not, if you have basically all the things that you could possibly want, all the food and the drink and the pleasures that you might want to have, uh, ultimately, all those things are vapors. And for me, I don't know, it's just it's the smelling salts. Uh, it's a book that I go back to. I mean, Ecclesiastes is a, is a book of the Bible I go back to often, and it is the smelling salts of life. And that book, Living Life Backward, is, is probably, I mean, I, probably I think it's the best meditation I've ever read on Ecclesiastes. And I probably read, I don't know, 10 or 12 of them. So, yeah. Well, I'm curious if any of this relates to you, but you and I share the same, I think, beliefs. But it's been a painful application. The application of of things that you just discussed, things that you took away from that book, at times it's been incredibly painful for me to actually incorporate that in my life, whether through whether I wanted it or not. And what I think draws me a lot to, you know, when I see you write or, you know, you've you're in a very fast-paced environment. I know you live in Columbia. You're around sophisticated people. You're around. You raise outside capital. Uh, you invest in in you know busy and and chaotic operating companies. All those things. Even when y'all provide stability and consistency, and you let people, at, at least from what it sounds like, try to do the right thing. But what seems like a very frantic life or a frantic lifestyle or a very challenging and demanding life. I'm curious. Has it cost you in any way, or is the to actually the to live out the application, did it ever feel like you were almost going to rehab or something to slow down and actually try to live out the things that it taught or what's that been like for you? Yeah, I, well, first of all, I think you may think I live a very different life than I actually lead. <laughs> uh, and if, if, if I'm projecting a, a, a frenetic, uh, high paced life, I'm probably doing a poor job. So that's maybe, that's maybe some marketing on my part that is, that is incorrect. I mean, the reality of it is that I make my girls breakfast almost every morning and, and I'm back home usually after they get home from school. And uh, do I work hard? Yeah. But I also like 
try to play tennis a couple days a week and try to take my wife on a date and vacation decently often and encourage those around me to do the same. Like, I mean, nothing is more miserable than working to lose your life. I mean, we want, I mean, like a big component of what work is, is, is enhancement. I mean, work is good, right? What work was around pre-fall and um, it is a blessing from God. And those who work and work hard, I, you know, I mean, there, there's a reason the rhythm of the Bible is set up the way it is. It's, you know, work your tail off for six days and rest for one day. And, you know, family's important. My faith's important. My church is important. Like, like the relationships and friendships I have are important. So like, I mean, yes, at various times I get swept up in things. I mean, we're in a season right now that is, I, I hope it doesn't get much more chaotic than this. Um, we just bought a business. We're buying another one very here shortly. And then another one after that. And, and uh, you know, life is a little bit busier than, than maybe I would want it some days. But I mean, for the most part, like I'm not living a New York paced lifestyle, I guess, if you could call it that, or maybe Silicon Valley paced lifestyle. Like, I don't think that's healthy. And I think I would be way less productive if I did so. Yeah. Well, no apology on your end. Maybe it was my own, you know, assumptions. It's just, it seemed like reading what you've put out that, you know, you got in early on. I, I think you said you bought your first company with an SBA loan. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, I did. So, and then, I don't know, you had five or six companies by the time you were 26, 27. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. So you kind of started as the entrepreneur operator and then you move through that process and then you become, you know, I know it's not completely fluid or linear, but then you become, you know, the investor ownership group. And so, and then, you know, and it's out there. So this is, but, you know, you raised a $300 million round that sounds like you deployed that and now... You moved on and congratulations on these three companies. So I'm just saying it outside looking in, it seems like it takes a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of gifting, a certain kind of ability to, to just move at a certain kind of pace to move through sure. all that. And I guess that was the assumption, but yeah, ha, I mean, was that, I, no, no, I, I was going to say, I mean, I, I, I think that that I understand from the outside looking in that that might be the case. I mean, I am, I am a, a trophy of grace, right? Like I, I say that. I'm not, this is not false humility here. Like I, I quite often wake up and don't understand how the things have happened the way they've happened. And the only way I can explain it is somehow God's got a plan and I'm just like holding on for dear life. And I'm, I mean, of course I'm co-creating, I'm trying to do my best. And I'm trying to be thoughtful. And, you know, as, as, as Proverbs uh, says, I mean, wisdom is more precious than gold and silver. Um, so certainly trying to do my part to, to work alongside God and, and, and see where this thing goes. But I mean, look, like a lot of things happen, frankly, that, I mean, I, I may be somewhat, you can explain how I'm involved in it or responsible for it, but I mean, I, <laughs> there's a lot more that happens than I'm responsible for. Let's put it that way, especially on the good side. Um, in many ways, I just try not to screw things up too badly. So <laughs> yeah, but I, but I appreciate that. I mean, it does take a certain type of personality. I mean, I, I've, I've had a high drive, uh, for a long time now. And, and I think, you know, as I get older, in fact, gosh, like I was talking to somebody today who's CFO of like a massive multi-billion dollar organization that's like two years younger than me. And I was like, what in the world has happened? How did I get old so fast? But anyway, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that the older I get, the more I understand that if, you, if you're constantly in a hurry, which I too often am, 
but I'm really trying to fight against that. If I'm too often in a hurry, then I'm going to lose out on the things that God puts right in front of me. And I'm going to get too self-obsessed and I'm going to think, gosh, I'm going to think about myself, you know, almost exclusively, which is just a recipe for disaster, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a narrow road, right? Which I think is where where God wants us, which is truly humble. And hum, you know, humility is not what is the, the C.S. Lewis quote? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And I think there's just an incredible quiet ping of truth to that statement. And too often we either fall into pride, which is you know sort of a self obsession on the, the 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 one end of the spectrum, or self pity which is also another form of pride, right? Pride is, you know, a looking inwards on the self and an admiration of the self uh, or a self-loathing can both be forms of pride. And I mean, I look like most days I'm like, you know, wiggling maybe down the middle a little bit and then fall off into one of the ditches and, you know, need to get put back in the middle. So thank God for grace. Yeah. I hear you, man. Uh, Redeemer, they've got a great visual on what you just said. I'm sure you've seen it or, you know, obviously I know it's not exclusive to them, but like self-flagellation and then, you know, arrogance, self-righteousness swinging to each side of the pit. Yeah. So yep. curious, you know, we're, I'm not going to go too deep on this, but, you know, I know you said you bought your first company with an SBA loan, but, but I'm curious from, and I'd love to connect this kind of to what we just talked about, if it, if it actually, if the dots do line up, but I'm curious what kind of the modeling maybe that you saw early growing up either with your parents or with your grandfather that kind of gave you that sense of confidence and gave you that sense of assurance early on when you kind of did blaze the trail in the way that you did and you're still doing it, but to where you were able to kind of operate in a way to where you would write an essay for Forbes where you said the world's worst boss or something to that extent. I think that's the first thing I've read of yours where you could own something like that or you could use experience that you had to teach other people, but then where you also had the sense of clarity or courage or confidence, however you want to put it, to continue to move forward and to not dwell or self-flagellate, you know, however you want to say it. Is there something you saw early on that was modeled, that taught you that, that was instrumental, especially in your 20s? Well, my 20s were really, really tough. I've, I've, been, I've been blessed that, that as I've gotten older, every year seems to be a little bit better than the last one. And I, um, my late 20s were really tough, to be completely honest. I mean, I don't talk about this often, but emotionally, you know, I was doing really well financially, uh, far better than I ever thought I would. And I had a full-blown like, existential crisis. And I became you know, I would say borderline nihilistic. I was certainly an atheist at the time. And, you know, (laughs) I remember I kind of got everything settled and and it felt like I had a a little bit of breathing room. And I just was like, you know what, I've got, I've got CEOs in charge of the businesses. I'm, I'm just going to retire. And I remember I like played golf. I can't remember how long I did this. It was like maybe three or four weeks. Just like, I just played golf and like, I didn't really do anything. And it was just miserable. And I was like, man, this is it. Like, this is the pinnacle of life. Like, this is miserable. <laughs> and I mean, what a jackass. Um, <laughs> and, you know, part of it was just, I, I mean, I think this is where, I mean, look, Jim Carrey has been public about his struggles. Kevin Durant has been public about his struggles. I mean, it, it, you know, whether it's in sports or, I mean, Tom Brady has talked openly about this is like, when the dog catches the car, the dog then asks himself, this is it? 
like, like life is about catching cars, right? Until you catch the car and then you catch the car and you realize like, maybe this life of trying to catch cars is, is, I mean, certainly feels attractive. It's certainly like you're driving towards something, you're yearning towards something, you're trying to take the hill, trying to conquer whatever you're trying to conquer. But then if you actually do it, and this is, I mean, Kevin Durant had like a, a full-blown existential crisis after he won his first uh, uh, NBA title. I mean, then you're like, what, what is the purpose of all of this? Like meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, right? To take it back to Ecclesiastes. And I think that's where, I mean, thank God I got rescued and thank God for the rescue. Um, this is where, you know, about that time I started meeting some, some, some people who were just so different than me and my friends. They were so kind and generous and self-sacrificial. And, and I was like, what are you doing? Like, what is this way of living? And they told me about Jesus and I didn't get it. Like, I was like, okay, so you guys are doing all this nice stuff for people so that God will love you. That seems like a really dumb idea. And they're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand the gospel. The good news is, is I'm not doing this to earn God's love. God loves me. So therefore I do this. I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I mean, everything was about earning, about performance, about doing more and being superior. And right. I mean, like, and when you achieve, you become condescending, you become arrogant, you become prideful, you become miserable. And so, you know, that was my twenties. I mean, how, how did I write that article for Forbes? Well, cause it was a lot of things I was reflecting on what a terrible boss I'd been, how manipulative I've been. And look, I still have some of these tendencies. Like I am, I am very much a work in progress. And I still have to apologize often to the people I work with for, for my behavior not being what it should be. Yeah, but what do you think about you gave you the confidence or the courage to acknowledge it, to write about it, to try to help anybody that would want to read it, but to where you don't stay stuck and, and like kind of wallow in that? You know what I'm saying? Where you kind of feel that freedom to keep building. I'm, because because I, was, I, was, I was a free man because like Jesus forgave me. Because of his his taking sin and death on the cross, like that was gave me the ability to write that is because I was no longer trying to earn my own salvation. So any bad deals, any jacked up relationships, anything like that, anything in a small town of Columbia or elsewhere when you travel, you felt the freedom. Now, obviously, it wasn't easy. I'm I'm, I'm only assuming here, and I'm thinking through my own experiences. But you you ultimately at the end of the day you got to a place where you could experience the freedom of the gospel and that gave you the courage and the confidence to to continue to own things to have humility or at least try to have more humility but but then to continue to keep moving forward each day with almost anticipation and trying to do things continued more in his image is that what you're saying Yeah I mean well here here's the thing I mean it, and look you're living it so I think any believer is in the same spot which is you still got a bunch of junk in your life, right? We are saints who still sin, right? I mean, that's, we are, we are free, but we are rescued, right? We're supposed to live as free men. We're supposed to have love drive out fear and anxiety. Do I still get anxious? Do I still get fearful? Of course. Does that mean I haven't thought deeply about, enough about what I believe? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the most incredible things about my transition from, from atheism to Christianity was, you know, if I was happy as an atheist, it means that I hadn't really thought too deeply about the, the real state of the world, right? And so when you catch the car, that's when it makes you think, right? And then it makes you miserable. And um, there's this great Oliver Wendell Holmes passage he's written, the famous jurist, uh, chief, chief justice of the Supreme Court. And he wrote this great thing. And he was like, you know, 
when I think deeply about the world, I realize I'm no different than a rock or an animal. And about that time, it's when I decide to go downstairs and pour myself a glass of whiskey and play chess. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you're an atheist, like, and you haven't thought deeply about the world, like you can distract yourself, you can pleasure yourself, you can um, try to achieve and accumulate and gain. And I mean, going back to, again, living life backwards book, you know, one of the best lines in there and the most memorable line, in my opinion, is life is gift, not gain. And that is exactly what we're talking about here. So as a, as a believer, I now viewed everything through this incredible gift lens. Like, here's this life I've been given, this beautiful life that's undeserved, this freedom that is completely undeserved. Like, I, I was at odds with God. I was an enemy of God, and God forgave me and loves me deeply, more than I will ever know. All he wants is a relationship with me. And he's going to walk with me and, and, and give me nothing more than I can handle and give me the strength to handle anything he gives me, right? And work all things out for my good and his glory. I mean, what better news can that be? I mean, that is the good news. It's the best news. And so, yes, that news transformed my life. I mean, un- unmistakably transformed my life. Yeah. I feel like I'm talking to Apostle Paul. Far more overweight Apostle Paul, but yes, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> um, what about your companies at that time? You know, when you took those three weeks or four weeks off to play golf and you're going to talk about retiring, which by the way, that's pretty rowdy. Uh, <laughs> thinking about... You know, think of any people that kill for that late twenties. But uh, were, were your companies a dumpster fire because of kind of where you were at personally at that point, or kind of the way it, you had structured things, or like were there any stark contrasts, uh, like differences between the way your companies, the ones you had, I know it was less than operated, versus how they're operated now and kind of the overall field culture, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, there's a radical difference certainly in how I behaved and, and maybe if I didn't behave differently, it certainly uh, believed a lot differently and my heart was in a lot different spot. But, but I would say is, were the companies dumpster fire? No. <laughs> I mean, have, have, you, have you met people that are successful? Like most of them are uh, miserable, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, most successful people, I mean, if, if, like let's talk for a second, just maybe as a sidebar on like, why is that? Well, it's because if you're going to start something new and grow something big, Chances are that your high control personality, so typically it's type A, high control, high pride personalities, that is also paired with divergent thinking. So just those two attributes alone are going to wreck most people's lives and most people's relationships, right? Because you're going to be controlling and you're going to be very different and odd than most people that other people meet. And as our society is, as, you know, sort of the civilized organization, we reject divergence. We don't embrace it. Uh, we reject it. And frankly, as, as people, we don't like uh, others controlling us, right? We, we, we want to, you know, have autonomy and freedom. And so, you know, were they dumpster fires? No, for sure not. And I mean, it wasn't like I was a, it wasn't like I was a monster, right? I mean, look, like at the end of the day, uh, I mean, this is all over the Bible, but I mean, we have the law written on our hearts, right? So even if you're not a believer, you, look, you've, you've got the moral law written on your heart. You know what's right and wrong. This is not hard. I mean, separate from maybe a few, you know, Ted Bundy-esque sociopaths. Um, I mean, th- m- most people know what they should and shouldn't be doing. And, and so, look, I didn't sound like I had no guardrails. It wasn't like I was a monster, um, I just was miserable <laughs> and I didn't treat people as well as I should treat them for sure. 
Um, and I use people as a means to an end, but, but look, they were still getting paid and they were doing a good job. And I think that, you know, I mean, the companies were performing, the companies were fine. I mean, that's what allowed us to have the success to continue forward. Would I never want to go back there? A hundred percent. Was it, was it hard and uh, incredibly difficult? I mean, absolutely. I mean, prior to, I mean, I had some, I had some crazy stuff we dealt with. I mean, I had, well, I had one period of work where I would literally uh, wake up with like sweaty palms and, you know, my blood pressure and cortisol levels through the roof. I would get ready. I would cry on the way to work. I would get myself cleaned up. I would go in, walk around, show a strong face and then close my door and cry in my office. Like <laughs> that isn't, that is not a life and that's miserable. And uh, yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I, a lot of the um, things we, we've seen, uh, we've experienced ourselves and a lot of the mistakes we've done, you know, we've learned the hard way, hit our face on the pavement. And so um, it's a heck of a tuition to have paid, but I think we're better for it, you know, and I think that's how God works. Like, this is the beauty of the gospel too, is that, I mean, all things, including sin pass through God's fingers. Either you believe God's sovereign or you don't. And God often uses our bad decisions to help mold us and shape us and call us to him, um, but also set us up for success in the future. Not always, but often. I mean, that's, yeah. you talk about the definition of grace. That's amazing. Yeah. By just your own transformation, has this affected significantly one way or the other how your operating companies are now and you know, the things that you have in store or working for you and your team for the next several years, like does it? Do things look vastly different prior to you going through this transition, or from a from a business standpoint, do things look pretty similar? You just as a person, as a friend, as a as a leader, as a coworker, et cetera. You just try to invest in people differently, et cetera. Or did these personal shifts? Can you really see those changes as well in in the operating companies that Permanent Equity has? Yeah. I mean, I would say the, the short answer is yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that like, I mean, look, we as an organization are radically different now than we were 10, eight, you know, eight to 10 years ago. I mean, radically different. So, I mean, I, it's, it's compare what we do now and how we do it to what was then. Like, it's just not even, the growth has been unbelievable and growth. I don't mean just in economics. I just mean in like our systems and quality of interaction and, you know, we have all gotten older and more mature. I mean, we were all growing up together and the hot messes, all of us, you know, what happens when, you know, you get a couple hot messes in the room and, you know, pack it with some pressure. I mean, you're going to get some, some volatile outcomes. So, I mean, I, I would say that for the most part has quelled. Um, we, we actually know a few things now, although that I would say, you know, I said this on Patrick's podcast, like, I would say we're, you know, like a four or five out of 10 on how good we could be for what we do for a living. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that we, I mean, that's exciting to me. Like we've not caught the car, <laughs> right? Um, I know that, the, that there's no, there's no joy in catching the car, um, but there's a lot of headroom for us to improve. And so, and a lot of that improvement looks, starts with me. And I mean, I'm always trying to get better. I mean, God, what God's put me over the last year, I mean, I has molded and shaped me in ways that I couldn't imagine. And I can, I can say, you know, uh, has it been hard? Yes. Am, am I, have I grown as a father, as a husband, as a leader? Yeah, I have. I'm grateful for those things. So yeah, I mean, do, do I now 
have a different heart to, to try to be kind to people and, and love them? Yes, I do. Do I always express that? No, I don't. No, for sure not. But the heart's there. Uh, at least I, I want to want. So it's just a work in progress. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. I'm curious, I've heard you talk about, before I've heard you talk about, you know, obviously you're very disciplined financially, you're very disciplined on wanting to make sure the companies you acquire spend all free cash flow, you want to make it a win-win, you want to use your domain expertise to help people succeed, your team, et cetera. But you talk about the sellers that you work with, you know, that they're going to maybe at times take a discount. Uh, depends on, you know, if you don't care about who you're selling your company to, what kind of owner are you actually? Um, you, you didn't say that in a judgmental way. You just were talking about your philosophy. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about just the confidence that you have in your approach, your team's approach, not only just to, to buy things at a fair value, to hit the expectations that you need and your investors need, et cetera, but to kind of hold your ground and then the psychology that you get into with sellers to where somebody might sell it. You know, this probably, this example doesn't carry across the board, but let's say if you're going to sell it at a three and a half multiple versus somebody else that might pay a five or whatever, whatever that would be translated to, to your side of it. But just maybe the more holistic value or opportunity from a stewardship standpoint that you see out of sellers that do want to sell it to you in permanent equity, where they might leave a little bit of money because they care about who's acquiring it. Can you talk about the psychology of that and how you've seen that play out? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so what I would say is we're on any deal we get done, we're in the ballpark of what other people are. So the idea that we're going out and getting a huge discount, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, do are we always the top bidder? No, but so much. I mean, I don't know if you ever heard the term. You set the price, but I set the terms. Yeah. Right. The idea is that there's so much in the fine print that matters. And so what you have to do is you have to look at the, the, the sort of the holistic view of the opportunity. And, and, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to set the table and design a system of transaction that allows all the parties to experience a win-win, right? So it's not just a seller and a buyer. It's a leadership team. It's the employees. It's the community that they are in. It's the uh, suppliers. It's the customers, maybe even regulators, depending on what, what business we're talking about. So you have to set the table such that 
you can give margin of safety to all those groups. You can, you can try to treat them well. And look, it ultimately comes down to, do you think that business is a zero-sum game or not? Do you think that you can enlarge the pie? Do you think that you can create and innovate and that um, by bringing us into a situation, we can actually, uh, you know, hopefully positively affect the outcomes of the business such that that seller is then coming along for a ride and getting a lot better economics through that process. So there's so many factors and you got to take all those into account. What I would say is where we just don't do well is if an investment banker or broker, depending on kind of where you are in the market, we kind of work on, on both ends, brings you know, a deal and says, look, we're going to shop this to 500 groups. You know, LOIs are due this date. It's literally just a straight auction, best price and best terms win. Yeah, That's it. Well, what that says is that the seller doesn't care at all who buys the business. And you know what? By the way, I'm not begrudging them. That's their decision. It's their property. They can do with it what they want. That is not a value judgment at all. And it can come across as judgy. It's not judgy at all. They can do what they want. What it does is though, it tells us a piece of information that's very valuable, which is if that's the way they're approaching the transaction, they probably approach other things in their life in a similar way. They're probably just highly transactional people. And so we as an organization made the decision for a lot of reasons that we would like to do business with relational people and not transactional people. That relationships are what actually grow the garden, if you want to use a Christian terminology, right? That, that we think that through working together, linking arms and co-creating, that we can actually build something more meaningful than if we just try to extract from each other as much as we can, as quickly as we can. And so, you know, my, my favorite transactions that we've done are ones that the, the sellers are rolling forward a meaningful chunk into the new company. And we created this incredible boom of value post-close together. It's not just our fault. It's not like, oh, you know, we're trying to take credit for it. I mean, look, it's, it's, that's not true. Um, but we were able to add some things and, and, and help, you know, change some decisions that maybe helped a lot. And I think we've seen that. And so now they're getting a second bite of the apple someday that's even bigger than the first. Like that's a heck of a lot better scenario, even if maybe they're taking a, I don't know, five, 15, 20% discount. I don't know what it is to what somebody else might pay them under different terms. Like they're actually getting more in the long term as a result of the transaction that we're designing. And so I, I think that's the only way to do business is you got to feel good about it. I mean, yes, we have investors and we want to serve them well and be a good fiduciary. And I think you know, our investors, like, I don't, that's a whole separate discussion is how in the world we ended up with, I think the best investors in the world, I, I, I'm still baffled by it. And the trust they put into us is, is unbelievable. And I think, you know, if you ask them, I'd be curious, that's actually true, but I think if you ask them, they would say, because they believe that through trust and through a relationship focused approach, it's going to generate higher long-term returns with less risk but it may look different than, than, than the way everyone else is playing the game. Yeah. You're more well-versed in this than I am, but I was interviewing a guy last week. This is something not for this, for something else, but you know, public and private investments. And I mean, he, he oversees a pretty good chunk of capital, but he was talking about one of the best private investments he's made. And, and um, you know, all the things that he talked about why, and, and it was about trust. It was about performance. It was about, you know, obviously the ability to allocate capital and all those things, but it was just, you know, 
you get the good news, you get the bad news. And again, I'm not going to go on too about this because I'm not this, I'm not an expert in that field, but it's just a, you know, I felt like I was having the same conversation again, just about all those things. When things come up, how do you, you build that relationship, you build that equity. And then, you know, when you get in dire straits, when you get in tough times, people want to give you whatever you need because they know that you're going to make it or they know that they're willing to bet on you to get through it because they believe if anybody can get through it, you can, because you know, you're going to, you're going to do whatever it takes, but there's no surprises. There's nothing in the closet. And, and then at the end of the day, when you hear people talk about the jobs that they're a part of, the, the creation that they're a part of, the value that they're creating for families, which I assume you have those same feelings, that's got to be an amazing feeling. Yeah. I mean, look, it, as I said in the beginning, work, work was created by God for our good, right? Like it is good to work. And the, the fruits of that work are, can be beautiful. I mean, do we, do we take the good things that God gives us and make them into ultimate things and turn them into things that carry too much weight and burden and get suffocated and crumble under our expectations? Absolutely. And, and I mean, I think that's the, <laughs> that's the unfortunate human condition. But in its most beautiful state, to see hard work being rewarded with financial gain and more resources to be able to pour into families and create opportunities and lift people out of poverty and... I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. It's just gorgeous. I mean, it is. Uh, there, there are times in my life that, you know, you just stop for a moment and you just admire the beauty of what God's done. Yeah. And I think that's where you have to, it has to terminate on what God's done. Because if you say, look what I've done. I'm the self-made man. I'm the guy with the chisel, chiseling himself out of a block of whatever, right? Like that, that's going to turn into poison quickly. And so... Yeah, it's just a beautiful thing. And pretty much to that point, I mean, it doesn't have to be exclusively transactional in that way, but I would imagine that's a, you know, that's a common indicator that it would be transactional or otherwise you just think highly of yourself and, and you think you're the reason, you know, why. but it sounds like what you're saying, if you actually look at it from a holistic standpoint, work is good. It was given to us by God where, you know, win-win, et cetera, you're able to take success, appreciate it and have humility through it, but then also to feel a responsibility to keep trying to, to multiply as best you can in the right way, but where it's a triple bottom line or however you want to say it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, it's hard for me to imagine now, like wh- what would retirement look like for me? Because I, I don't think God ever calls us to say, okay, look, you, you've worked hard for a season of your life. Now go do nothing for the rest of your life and wait to death. Like, I don't know what that would look like. I mean, I think there's, there's seasons where you're going to work in one way and work in a different way, but I think that God's calling us to work and to work to our abilities. Now, look, I mean, as you lose faculties, as you, you know, as, as, your, as your internal motor gets, gets less and less revved up, right, as we age, I mean, it's just natural, right? I mean, unfortunately, passion's wasted on youth, right? I certainly feel that in my life. And, uh, uh, but look, I mean, I think God calls us to uh, take the co-creation with him seriously. And um, yeah, I mean, I look for the rest of my life. I look forward to trying to serve others and love others through the work I do. And, you know, whatever benefits I get to get along the way, that's, that's great. But I mean, ultimately, like I stopped working for money a long time ago and um, I'm grateful to have, have, have a, you know, <laughs> grateful to have realized that uh, at, a, at a relatively young age. Yeah, man, that's good. Can you speak to anything about the value of working with, you know, a, a good sized company, uh, 
a 20, 30, $100 million company, whatever it might be, but where it's in really good shape financially and it's really good people. But from the benefit of potentially considering something like that versus working for some big public corporation. And what specifically made me think about that, I'm thinking about all the things that we're talking about today, but then I'm also thinking about other conversations, et cetera. But where people talk about for their career, you know, they had opportunities to go work for, you know, Boeing, G, whatever that might be, but they they got they just got into a company what sounds like yours or or other companies that are in that size that I talked about. And they just talk about the value that they've gotten for themselves and the career advancement, but then the the work-life balance as much as that somebody can have, but then the ability when a company is well capitalized and it's in good shape, just all the opportunity that can happen. Does any of that resonate in any way? I mean, can you speak to that versus if you're super ambitious, climbing the corporate ladder, only thinking about you know, these large corporations and maybe thinking about it a little bit differently? Well, I mean, look, I mean, to be completely fair, like I've never worked for a large corporation. So I'm just guessing as to what it's like to work there. I mean, all I have is anecdotes based on what people have said and I've read. But I would just, I mean, I go back to when, when anybody asked me for career advice, the first question I was asked them is, well, one, do I have permission to ask you a tough question? They almost always say yes. Actually, everyone says yes. And then the second question is, okay, just frankly, what are you optimizing for? And I think that question really cuts to the chase of the differences and maybe where you're trying to work. Like if you want prestige, like if you want to go and be impressive at a bar to the opposite sex, working at a big company can be a great path to that. Um, and sort of in an judgmental way, like if you're optimizing for the, the quickest path to the most dollars, there's a different track that you go down. If you're optimizing for pure power, there's a different track you're going down. And so I think, you know, depending on what you're optimizing for, there are sort of trains and, and lanes that you can go in <laughs> that um, put you on a track to achieve those things. I, I think that, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, look, I, I want to I wanna serve God and I want to I love my neighbor as myself, and is money important? Well, yeah, sure, of course, money is important. Would I would I like to have more resources, whether that's power or influence or um, maybe some notoriety would, would be fine, so that I can point to Jesus? Like, well, then that's a very different question. But I think that most people are are, are not evaluating decisions based on that criteria. They're they're optimizing for you know most often money. Um, probably second behind that is is some sort of prestige. Yeah, they're playing a social game. And, and I think that that's where, you know, you just never want to fool yourself what you're actually trying to optimize for. And so what I would say is there's a lot of different paths. I mean, small businesses are as diverse as anything. I mean, there are some great small businesses to work for, and there's some terrible small businesses to work for. In general, the smaller the organization that you're part of, the more, you know, autonomy and, and uh, influence you're going to be able to have. You're just, you know, it, it's just natural. The larger the organization, you know, the less you're going to have. I mean, again, it just depends on matching your skill set and your perspective and what you're trying to optimize for to the opportunities you can find. And what I would say is most often I see people just kind of, I don't know, they go to a good school, their guidance counselor or the career services person tells them like, hey, you should go interview at this job fair. The people at the job fair are all large companies. You know, it's all the consulting firms and the Boeings of the world or whatever they're recruiting at the fair. And so now their, their whole world is now shrunk to this tiny sub-segment of, of companies, of opportunities out there. And what I would say is, you know, don't do that. 
Maybe go work at Boeing or maybe go work at, you know, Bain or wherever. But, but, but for God's sakes, don't, don't just only look at those because they showed up at the career fair and they happen to fall in your lap. Like, go and, go and be thoughtful about researching companies and talk to people and have conversations. I mean, some of the, my favorite conversations are people who reach out to me and say, hey, you know, you look like you're doing something that I might want to do someday. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? Of course, be happy to answer questions. And the dirty secret is, unless you're trying to sell me something, I basically reply to every email and reply to every uh, Twitter DM, every single one of them. Don't tell anybody, but I literally <laughs> reply to every single one of them. Yeah. How much time do you spend on that a day? Um, probably, I mean, maybe, maybe 30 minutes. Dang, you're a fast typer. Well, everyone's got their skill sets. So yes, I, I've, I've evolved. So I told you, I listened to one of your interviews and uh, I heard you've got this new platform coming out or some sort of network for business professionals. Is that correct? It's for investors, for professional investors okay. called Deal Team. Yep. But I'm curious about your motive for doing it. And I'm curious, I've heard you talked about in that episode, you talked about just your relationship with the with the interviewer. You talked about y'all's friendship. You talked about because of that friendship that opened up this whole new network. You know, you hear all these things about distribution, how most people can't figure it out. But I'm I'm curious to hear you speak on, if any, the own reasons that you wanted to build this because of the things that came your way and then these new worlds that were open up to you that created a lot of opportunity, a lot of, you know, capital for investment, all those things. How much of that was influenced because of the things that happened to you, you know, a few years ago and, and why you would want to maybe create that for other people? It's a great question. So, so I had this incredible experience, which is I was just a schmo in Columbia, Missouri doing his thing, right? Like a, like a nobody. And I happened to meet this guy, Patrick, um, who, who has a podcast called Invest Like the Best. And it's great. He, he and I, it's a great podcast. He and I, actually, I knew Patrick before the podcast. In fact, it was funny, just as an aside, I remember when he called me, he's like, Brent, I'm thinking about doing a podcast. Do you want to come on? And I was like, yeah, I guess that's fine. Sure. Like, whatever. And then it turns out to be like the most successful investing podcast ever. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like a funny thing to see how, how things start. Right. And, and Patrick's obviously outrageously talented. Like he's the, he, he, I told somebody the other day, he's like, Patrick's like, the, the guy who like, you just are almost frustrated with how talented he is because he's like, he's, he's incredibly talented. He's like, got, you know, a six pack, he's got a perfect family. He's like hyper intelligent. And he's also kind, which is like the most frustrating of all the things, right? Cause you're like, you have no reason to be kind, but he just, he just is like naturally predisposed to just, you know, being a kind, thoughtful guy. So anyway, aside from that, he, he said, Hey, I want to get to know you more we spent a day together in St. Louis and he through that, through that day in St. Louis, like transformed my life. I mean, it's not, it goes without saying, but like he basically said, design whatever you want to design to create the new private equity firm that you have in your head that no one else has ever done. And my family would either invest in it or not. You, you tell me what it is. We'll say yes or no. And if we invest in it, then we'll help you raise the rest of the money. And like, I didn't have any connections to wall street. Like I didn't, I didn't have the, the ability to get $50 million of investment, which was what our first fund was, um, especially with a group of people who are, you know, in Columbia, Missouri, operating out of a house. Like, <laughs> it's just weird, right? Like, like, no one gives money to those people. And so what I learned was that, like, Patrick gave me an on-ramp. 
to success. Now, would I have been successful, quote unquote, without that? Of course. I mean, I was already financially successful before then. Like, you know, we, we were doing fine. And in fact, there was some pretty ardent debate on our team about whether or not we should even take outside capital and uh, differing opinions. And so um, what, what I would say is that that, that on-ramp is just hard to describe how valuable that was and how important that was to my career. And to be honest, it felt very serendipitous. Like, how, how did I meet Patrick? I literally replied to a, to a Twitter request he had that if anybody was into capital allocation and they wanted to have a conversation with him, uh, this is like before he was like famous and, you know, like everyone would agree to this. So I was like one of the, the people who were like, yeah, sure. I got nothing better to do on a Tuesday. And we get on the phone. And he's like, now, so what do you do? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I buy small businesses. And he's like, wait a minute, what? I thought you were in the public markets. And I was like, no, no, no. He's like, I thought we were talking about capital allocation. I was like, well, I allocate capital just in the private markets. And he was like, okay, hold up, like back up, back up. So like, what are you doing? And so we spent like an hour on the phone and he just was like, mine was blown. Like he'd never heard of this space, right? And so that then sparked all the other stuff. And so deal team, so deal team, what is deal team? Deal team is kind of, it is the communications platform for professional investors. It includes a social function. It includes a communications platform with DMs and group DMs, you know, kind of like almost like a front end that's kind of a blend of Twitter and Quora, middle that's kind of a WhatsApp-ish with some different features specifically built for investors. And then a back end as if like kind of LinkedIn was built for investors, like highly searchable. The whole thing is searchable. There's no anonymity. And it's, it's, it's built for professional investors to find one another and hopefully develop meaningful and profitable relationships. So that's, that's, the, that's the purpose behind it. Now, my purpose in, in wanting to create it with Patrick is because I want a ton of people out there who were like me from five, six years ago, who had a good pond to fish in, who knew what they were doing, but just didn't have an on-ramp and access to big pools of capital. And by the way, big pools of capital are desperate to find people like that to invest in because the returns are way better than they can get anywhere else. And so what you're dealing with is an inefficient market. And... Um, I'm just excited. I'm excited to see what happens. I mean, it's a mapping exercise of the professional investing world. Um, I love to understand who are people and where do they live and what's the background and what are they interested in. And so we're going to give it a go. Uh, should launch here and, you know, call it two to three weeks, maybe a month, depending on how fast we can actually get things done. But we've been building on it for the better part of 18 months now. So it's been a heck of a build. We've had four slash five full-time developers on it for a long time. Wow. And um, it's like a legitimate piece of software. Like it's been expensive. Yeah. And uh, uh, expensive in time, emotional energy, financially. And it's one of those things where, look, I, I want it and I want it for the world. And Patrick wants it for the world. And so we're going to bring it to the world and see if the world wants it too. So you've just been spending a fair amount of time understanding how to bring a software platform to the market. Now, obviously, I know you're not the CEO of it or anything like that, but, and I know, you know, what, five years ago, y'all launched Capital Cam, but it, it's pretty crazy to hear you talk through for you personally. And I'm only, I'm only thinking about you personally with all this, but how this, the spaces, you know, just keep, just keep reaching more and more people. But I mean, you talked about the the breaks that you were given. You talked about the ups and the downs. You talked about, you know, really questioning things, but then, 
the breaks that came your way, the performance that you've always had, but it just keeps putting you in a bigger and bigger ecosystem of how, you know, of how to really connect people, how to impact people, how to, how to really pour into them, but then how to try to bring as many people along with you. I mean, it just sounds pretty wild learning just all the different things, the different seasons and the different chapters of, you know, the things that you're having to dive into and understand and, and then obviously put your own money in. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, I, you're as baffled by it as, as I am. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just along for the ride and, and often find myself wondering if it's real life or not. And, and also, by the way, I don't want to give the impression like there's also hard stuff, right? I mean, we talked about the hard stuff before. There's still hard stuff now, right? I mean, like nothing's ever perfect and nor do I want to give the impression that like, I don't know if you listen to my first interview with Patrick, I don't know how many years ago that was, but like I had so many people who said, Oh my gosh, I listened to that episode and sparked my career of like, I'm, I'm changing careers. I'm dropping out of this highly successful job that I have. And I'm going to go try to buy a small business. And I was like, I am so sorry. I ruined your life. Like that is not, (laughs) that is not my intention. Like I, did you listen to the follow-up episode? Cause that's where I talked about all the hard stuff. Um, So it's, it's, it's really hard. It's like, it's difficult because when you, when you talk in, in look, things are, things are, we're doing far better than we deserve. Right. And like, it's, it's fantastic where we are. And I, I, like I said, I feel outrageously blessed, but like, it's also hard. Like no one lives an easy life. No one like, like I, and, and, and so, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's life is confusing, but awesome. Yeah. Curious. I know you're young, but I think it'd be really cool to hear you answer this question. What are the things as a father I don't know the ages of your kids. I know generally just from stuff, you know, I've read about you, but what are the things that you're really trying to just make sure you lock in with your kids that they feel or understand where they're at now and the things that you want them to know as they're growing up in you and your wife's household for them to just, whatever they may do one day, what are the things that you're trying to just make sure they know above all else? Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, I think about it uh, often, but probably not often enough. And, um, you know, of course, your family likes to get to see the worst sides of you, right? So uh, a lot of these, the ideals that I have, I certainly don't, uh, uh, don't live out nearly as well as I should. But yeah, my girls are six, four and two. Uh, so three little girls. And um, I'm not that young anymore. In fact, I almost, uh, I, I, was, I was eligible to join an organization the other day. And they said, well, we're going to have to make an exception. And I was like, Oh really? What, what's, what's the problem? And they're like, well, you'd be the oldest member we've ever admitted. And I was like, what? Like, when did that happen? You was know, fraternity, um, college fraternity or what was it? <laughs> no, no. It was, a, it was a, it's a business organization. Anyway, it's, 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 it's here nor there, but I just was shocked. I was like, when did I turn the old guy? You know? Um, but anyway, it's something happens in your like mid thirties where you like, I feel like early thirties, you're still like young. And then like mid thirties, you're kind of like right on the bubble. And then late thirties, like people are like, Oh, well, you know, you're kind of a ripe banana now. Um, <laughs> anyway, so how do I, what do I want to make sure my, my, my girls understand? I mean, at the end of the day, I want to make sure they understand the gospel. That's really what I want to make sure they understand. Now, look, it's, it's clear in the Bible. Um, I mean, Paul talks a lot about this. And Jesus self talks about this is demons know who, who God is and reject him, right? So just knowing who God is, knowing about Jesus knowing about the gospel does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is your submission to reliance upon trust in relationship with the creator of the universe. And that's a, that's a choice. We are given free will, right? Cause if without free will um, we would be mere captives and God wants relationship, real relationship. God wants real love and love can only be given 
when it's not required. And so I want my girls to, to understand the gospel. Um, beyond that, look, I, I want what you know every father I think wants for his daughters, which is that they live healthy, happy, productive lives. You know, I, <laughs> I it's hard. Like we're trying to let them experience some pain. You know, uh, we're not trying to be helicopter parents. Um, we're trying to make sure that they are, you know, have some fortitude that they've developed for themselves. How does that be, you know represent? I, I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> It's, it's difficult. It's, it's tough to watch your kids in pain, um, yeah. but we try. We try to let them. But yeah, I mean, beyond that, look, I I, um, I hope that they love Jesus and that they use their life that they're given to co-create with God in the way that they're called to do that. If that's in business, fantastic. That would that would make me happy. But it would make me equally happy if they were a school teacher or an artist. My wife and I. We want them to be as educated as they need to be and wherever they want to be educated in. We don't need them to learn Mandarin at the age of two and <laughs> like be on the track to go to Harvard and, and all that. Like we want them to like, they want them to live well, uh, live an examined life, uh, live, you know, live a thoughtful life. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thank you. Curious. Just at the end of the day, what is it about investing money? What is it about buying operating companies that got you fired up in the beginning and kept you engaged throughout this entire point, you know, up to now. And is that fire still there and what keeps you yeah. engaged? Well, I'm going to answer this uh, in, a, in a way that may be a little unusual, which is um, I, I, I would apply the same analogy to my marriage, which is why did I initially want to marry my wife was because she's hot. <laughs> right. Like I called her the sexy scientist for a year before I asked her out. Um, and, uh, That's you know, an, I'm going to name the podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The um, is hot. Yeah. The sex science is hot. And, and, uh, yeah, it's just the truth. And then, you know, what God gave me was this beautiful relationship that certainly had its ups and downs, but I like, I admire her for her thoughtfulness and kindness and, and just, I mean, she, I, I just have so much reverence for her. But that's not why I initially was interested in her, right? Frankly, why was I initially interested in small businesses? Because I think I could make a bunch of money. Um, and because I did make a bunch of money. Why am I still in, the, in that world? Is because I feel very called that God's put me here for a reason to help transition families and the legacy of families and help uh, a tremendous number of people uh, flourish. I mean, that's, that's, that's the truth now. Do I care about returns? Yes. In some ways, it's the way you keep score. Um, and without good returns, we would not have the ability to continue to help more and more families flourish. But look, like if, if, you, if you believe that there's a grain to the universe and that God designed this world to work a certain way, and if you read uh, Proverbs, you would go into a lot of this detail. I mean, if you go with the grain of the universe, things are generally going to work out. Is there, are there bad bounces of 100%? I mean, read Job, right? <laughs> it's not always yeah. because you're sinful, right? And read Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, read the wisdom literature. But, you know, I, I think that small businesses are the greatest way I can impact the world around me and, and is the highest and best use of my time. And, and look, I mean, it's, it's given me great opportunities so far. So, and if, and if there is a certain point, if, if God decides that this is not the path I should be on, then, then I'll go in a different path. But I, I love what I do. 
I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about it. I'm excited about it. I just greatly enjoy it. Talk about a mountain to climb to get to that point where at least some days you can hold it with open hands, especially, you know, when you've been given so much through it. Man, that's awesome. Curious about just some of your perspective on the future from the companies that y'all own. What are you concerned about? What are you hopeful for, optimistic about? But maybe first before that, how do you think about the workforce? I know you're talking about that pool company in Arizona. Y'all could quadruple your revenue if you had enough people. You know, there's a company. I mean, there's just, you know, every single company, every industry. I mean, I want to say the absolute, but, you know, so much turnover, so difficult to hire. So many people are, there's so many open positions across the board. When you think about your own operating companies, how do you think about that with y'all? And then how are you thinking through how to invest in automation or robotics or anything like that? Nothing like crazy fancy, but to try to create optimization, to, to try to keep up increased production, et cetera. How are you positioning, you know, y'all selves for the next 10, 15 years, just in this whole space that seems where it seems like obviously the biggest companies, they have a lot more capital to do that. Smaller companies, you know, even trying to do it, some of them, depending on their size, but they're limited in what they can do. But it's just a, it can be just an all out battle every single day, trying to keep up with demand and get the job done and not kill your people in the process. Yeah. I, I, so, I mean, we're certainly not Luddites. Um, we, we definitely <laughs> want to use technology. And I think the technology is a good thing for people. Are we that interested in robotics and replacing people and sort of pulling, pulling as many people out of companies as possible? Frankly, we're not. And in fact, I think one of the things that we're most excited about is how do you, how do you create educational opportunities to take a person who has a less valuable skill set to the world and give them a more valuable skill set? And I think one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about, and by the way, we're very early on in this journey, so this is not fully baked. And anybody who listens to this, if you've got great ideas in the space, would love to hear them. The, the company we just acquired uh, is a, a very specialized construction subcontractor. And one of the things that was interesting to us about the organization was it's in a fairly, you know, I would call commodity sector. And there's very little differentiation in the specific subcontractor. It's really hard to tell if somebody's done a good job or bad job, except if there's a catastrophe. And so initially we were like, eh, it's commodity. It's in a, yeah, it's in a weird sector. Like it's... It just doesn't feel like something we want to do. And then the thing that caught our eye was they are taking people who have, you know, sort of low-skilled jobs, recruiting them, and training them up in a very systematic way and giving them increasing pay scales as they acquire skills, where somebody can make two, three, four, five times as much money as they previously were within a fairly short period of time if they take their job seriously, do what they're asked to do, and, and get after it. And to me, that's the future. I mean, how do, how do we create a better workforce? We need to incentivize them to understand the causality between skills and, and pay. We need to do a better job of that. I think for many, you know, the blue-collar trades are looked at as dead-end jobs. Like, it's kind of like the, you do that thing for the nights and weekends. There's, there's not much pride in it for, for a lot of people or at least a lot of people that are looking in from the outside looking in. I would say that the people doing the jobs, there's a tremendous amount of pride but it's just not attractive to young people. And so look, like, let's just be frank, whenever you have a government that's incentivizing people not to work, right, through, through payments, I don't blame you if you don't like the work you do and the government's gonna pay you as much or nearly as much money to not work, 
mean, come on. Like I, 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 I get it. Like, it's not a, it's not a mystery. How do you, how do you have so much unemployment and so many open jobs? Like it's, I mean, come on, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't a hard puzzle to figure out. Right. Um, and by the way, was that the wrong decision at the time to do that? I, I, I'm not, look, I'm not in politics. I, I'm not going to pretend that I understand, you know, economics at that level. All I know is that, you know, boots on the ground, it, it's, it's affecting people's lives. And I'm not sure the long-term effect on, on a lot of people will be positive as a result of it. But hey, look, it is what it is. So all we can do at this point is give people the opportunity to earn more and do better and take pride in their work. That's it. You're saying that this specific company that y'all acquired, they already have a proven process of how they bring people in. They don't have to have experience. They just got to, they got to have the mindset to do the work and to learn. And then they're able to put them on a track and they're able to teach them. And then they're able to ramp up their wages as they continue to succeed with their work. So they've already built out and successfully done this. Is that what you're saying? Correct. In 13 different languages. Holy smokes. It's amazing. It's amazing. So through that acquisition, then you're able to take that blueprint and just replicate it across all these other operating companies you have too. We yes, we 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 could. Hopefully, we will. I mean, we're right now. We're just trying to get our arms around what we got in front of us and treat those people well and not get you know not get the cart in front of the horse. But yeah, so it's, it's really of no concern to you that there's going to be enough people that can go into that system with that company or other companies for the foreseeable future, as much as you can say that as it relates to you, like you're not thinking much past that. Is that what you're saying? I mean, look, I, I, I think if you're, if you're buying a high labor intensity business, you should be thoughtful about labor dynamics is what I would say. And certainly we're, we try to be, am I, do I think the, the solution to the obvious problem is let's get people out of jobs and, and automate everything we possibly can you know, I mean, if there's obvious ways we can do that, that's great. But I, I, we're certainly not investing heavily in, like you said, robotics or something like that to try to accelerate that. Um, we like that people work for us and that we can help provide for their families. And we, we like employing people. We, we think that's a good thing. Yeah. And so that's where y'all are focusing and y'all aren't getting too far out over your skis, so to speak, on all that other stuff. You're just taking care of these things now, making these changes, and which is already probably... 5% of all the other companies in the market, so to speak, and trying to do that well, and then recruit, bring people in, et cetera, and then just try to hopefully maybe apply that to the other, other companies that you have. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, I think it's, I think my way I would sum it up is we want to be people centric, which means that we want to enable the most amount of people to maximize their skill set and, and their desire to work in the organizations that we have. And if that comes along with technology, fantastic, but we're not focused on replacing people with technology. Yeah. In 2015, I saw where, you know, there were 12 million baby boomers who run a business and 70% of those would retire over the next couple of decades, et cetera. I assume you probably saw that, you know, way before 15. And would you say, A, did you see that early? And B, was that a factor in certain decisions that you made? several years ago and, and see, would you say you're experiencing a pretty good, not windfall, lack of a better word, of that statistic right now in this season? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, yes, I remember having this light bulb moment in like 2010, 2011, when I'd studied, really went deep on, is this what we, what we want to do? 
and uh, looked at all the demographics, looked at all of the charts and everything and said, my goodness, this is the largest intergenerational transfer of private businesses in the history of the world is getting ready to go down. And it's a heck of a tailwind. Yes, we should. (laughs) It was definitely a motivating factor, for sure, no doubt. Ironically, 2008 had a huge effect. And well, in one way, uh, you know, it caused a lot of these smaller companies to retrench and, you know, took them a long time to maybe get back if if they ever did get back to where they were sort of pre-2008. Also, health outcomes amongst the people that we buy businesses from have, have dramatically increased in the last 20 years. And so people are working longer because they feel better. I mean, the quality and quantity of life is going up pretty dramatically uh, in our segment. And so that also has, has elongated the process. So I would say is we're still on the early innings mm. of, of that process. We're not past it, let's put it that way. And so, um, you know, the challenge is for somebody who wants to get into it now, it takes like a good five years of getting your butt kicked to understand what you're doing in the space. And so there's a, there's a danger of you can go too fast, too quickly in the space too. So, yeah. So you're saying people that are happy, that are, you know, have good companies, et cetera, they're healthier, they can run them longer, which then continues this kind of opportunity cycle. And then you're also saying people that want to sell or move on you know, you have the convergence of those things and you're still continuing to sit right in the middle of that and experience that opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Man, last question I got, you know, there's a lot of different, I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times, but, and there's a lot of data obviously out there, but, you know, of the amount of people, the percentage of people that would say they are not doing what they wish they were doing or what they want to be doing, you know, Gallup has a poll, there's a lot of other stuff out there, 65%. When, you know, somebody that you care about, somebody that you can spend time with, at the end of the day, how have you encouraged people to really try to understand kind of what their mission is to the way that you articulated it? And then B, how important is that to know that, especially if you're going to go through getting your butt kicked, the ups and the downs, staying engaged when you have, you know, good seasons and all that kind of stuff. So kind of, A, how do you encourage people to address that because there's so many people that struggle with it. And then B, how important is that if you're actually going to endure and persevere and really have expertise in your craft for a long period of time? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough question. I mean, I, how am I doing that? I don't think I'm doing it well, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I think, look, all this stuff is just so messy. I mean, what should we do? How should we do it? What skill set matches up with what opportunity? I mean, it is just, it, it is so much art. I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the only thing I can do for, for those around me is just to be a sounding board and, and try to be thoughtful in my response and kind and loving towards them. And, you know, uh, try to, you know, hold up the mirror and let them see maybe what I'm seeing. But beyond that, I mean, look, anything that you're going to do that's going to be meaningful in life is going to be hard. I mean, marriage is going to be hard. Raising kids is going to be hard having lifelong relationships of any sort are going to be hard. Building a business, starting a business, buying a business, operating a business, it's going to be hard. And so I think the biggest thing is just to not be surprised by adversity. It's going to be hard. And if, you, if you're not prepared to face adversity of all kinds and unexpected things will always come up. I mean, we have, man, we, we, I feel like I've seen a lifetime already. Um, I feel old, right? <laughs> I'm 38 and I feel old. I mean, we have, we've had people steal from us. We've had put people through rehab. 
we've had people uh, sue us frivolously. We've we've had people uh, cheat and lie and steal and all that all that stuff. And and look, the, the, there's there's a couple responses to that. You can get cynical and jaded, or you can say, you know what, uh, that could be me. And uh, by the grace of God, I go forth, and that I have made a lot of mistakes in my life, and I choose to you know, give them grace and forgiveness and not harbor ill will. And man, the biggest change in my life, uh, and there's a little bit of a tangent off your question, but I started praying for my enemies and you talk about a change, a heart change in me. Like that is, is impossible to be angry with somebody if you're praying for them. It's impossible. And um, so anyway, I would just, I would, I would just be an encouragement to people around me that uh, they can't screw it up. Right. All God asks us to do is just give it our best and uh, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Man, thank you. And uh, it's just something I've seen, and I'm honestly just trying to continue to understand it, but there's things obviously that uniquely appeal to each of us, and and it's a process. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes things take time, or sometimes we just have to live incredibly frustrated. But then when you kind of find your lane, you can, you know, acknowledge that it's not up to your control or your power. It seems like that just gives you a little bit more of a, contentment to the process itself. Whereas at other times where you're just kind of want to hit the eject button and it's hard to find that. And then there's so many influences, so many things around us that can kind of persuade us to do different things. And so it's, it's hard to kind of get that clarity, but it's really neat today hearing you kind of talk through this journey and then thinking about the way you described it with marriage, man, that was just so clear and spot on. Uh, the things that drew you in at first you know, we're one thing, but then over time, it's like your whole operating premise changed. And uh, to hear you articulate that, it'll be a lot of fun to see what happens over, you know, the next 40 years. <laughs> well, I appreciate you so much, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a, it was a true pleasure. Um, you're a talented guy and I, I appreciate it. I look, look forward to uh, getting to, to spend time with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast. Podcast.